0: Romans chapter 12, verses 14 through 21. In a message I'm entitling, The Expression of Love. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 14, Paul writes, Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, But rather give place to wrath, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Therefore, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil. Evil with good. Some have called Romans chapter 12 Paul's other love chapter. Many of you are familiar with 1 Corinthians chapter 13 where there is an outline and definition of love. And last week we looked at the challenge of love, but now we look at the expression of love. Why is love so important? Remember, we've already learned that love fulfills the commands of Jesus and marks the identity of the believer. And some Christians suffer from what I call LDD. That stands for love deficit disorder. And love deficit disorder, the symptoms include apathy, indifference, hypocrisy, impurity, conceit, selfishness, insensitivity, hypercriticism, discontentment, disappointment, complaint, isolation. And fear. You know our society is quick to blame syndromes and disorders. For all kinds of problems. But at the root of many difficulties. Lies the persistent problem. That we live in a broken world. And we have personal sin. And sin is quite simply rebellion against God. Sin isn't simply a lack of love. I'm going to suggest to you that it isn't so much a lack of love, but rather misplaced love because sinners love themselves. Ask a sinner if they love God, if they love other people. The chances are almost everyone will say, I love God, I love other people, yet sinners hoard love. And they lavish it upon themselves. Our love toward one another should be, remember what we've learned, sincere, without hypocrisy. Paul speaks of the believer's life as a sacrifice in verses 1 and 2. Um, We are members of a body, verses 3 through 8. We're members of a family, verses 9 through 13. We are soldiers in a battle, verses 14 through 21. We have blessings, and we have battles... And so, Paul instructs us on how to minister to those who oppose Christ, who oppose grace, who oppose the gospel. We're to exercise mercy, a kind of Christian nobility, we're to exercise self-control, we model Christ's love and we express his love. We extend grace and mercy and kindness and forgiveness to all men. John Phillips has a, a wonderful outline for this passage. He puts it this way, he says, match their moods in verses 14 through 15. Mind your manners in verse 16. Mark these methods in verses 17 through 21. We might say be sensitive to the emotions and circumstances of people in verses 14 and 15. Be social towards the unbeliever in verse 16. Be systematic or constant in the way you live your lives in Christ before others. Because people are watching. They're watching what you say. They're watching what you do. All of these are expressions of love. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. The New Living Translation says if people persecute you because you're a Christian, don't curse them. Pray that God will bless them. When others are happy, be happy with them. If they're sad, share their sorrow. In many ways the world of Rome in the 1st century was a brutal world. Christians faced unrelenting persecution. They faced complete difficulty and hardship, confiscation of property, rejection from com- from family, excommunication from the synagogues, and many places in the world it's still this way. In northern Sudan, In all of Somalia. In North Korea. Parts of China. Parts of India. Albania. There are people who have difficulty after difficulty. This week I read a headline of a 28 year old woman. Who is nine months pregnant. And she has a 13 month old child. She left Islam and embraced Christianity and Christ. The Sudanese government, exercising Sharia law, convicted her of adultery because she was a Muslim married to a Christian and they didn't recognize it. They said that the Quran didn't even recognize her her marriage, convicted her of adultery and whipped her with a hundred lashes. She's standing trial right at this very moment for her life. And if she's found guilty of apostasy. She will be put to death. It's easy to love people who love you. But how do you love someone who's committed to persecuting you? To humiliating you? To embarrassing you? To abusing you? And because people love people who love them back, we sometimes... Find difficulty reading what we're reading. When it says, bless those who persecute you, the word persecute you is an interesting word in the original language. It means to flee towards or to run towards. The idea is that someone is after you. The picture in the old, in the, in the world of antiquity is they're running toward you with the purpose of doing you harm. They've singled you out for harm. It's not really paranoia when they really are after you. And so Paul challenges the believer not to run away. Love steps up rather than stoops down to carnal contention. Love blesses when others are bent on hurting, abusing, cursing. Think about what Paul is saying. Love doesn't simply suffer long. It does that, but it does more. Love doesn't simply endure ill treatment, but it heaps well wishes on those who are engaged in the hurt. And if we are honest, this is the attitude of Jesus. This is exactly the attitude that Jesus adopted. Remember, there were really three kinds of people. Those who were Apathetic and indifferent to Jesus, those who loved Jesus, and those who literally persecuted Jesus. The religious leaders were bent on harm. But Jesus was bent on help. And this is the radical instruction of Jesus that he gives to his disciples. Remember, the last miracle that Jesus ever performed was to fix the mistake of a misguided apostle. You remember, Jesus is taken prisoner in the, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember, the temple soldiers show up. There is a confrontation. Peter draws his sword. He swings wildly. He hits the ear of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. It pops off. Jesus says, put away your sword. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. He stooped into the dirt and picked up his ear and he went, popped it right back on his head. They're committed to hurt. He's committed to help. I think Peter had this in mind. He remembered in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling. Reviling means evil speaking. We we use the term abusive speech. Peter writes, but on the contrary, blessing. Knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. The New Living Translation says, don't retaliate when people say bad things about you. And so we Christians face a great challenge. Will we express the love of Jesus? Will we represent Jesus? Or will we misrepresent Jesus and and Christianity? Will we be high-minded or conceited or selfish? How do we behave as loving Christians without coming off as pompous or self-righteous or holier than thou? How do we remain loyal to Jesus but Not antagonize our unsaved family, our unsaved friends, the watching world. Unbelievers often cite the behaviorist Christians as one of the major reasons why they remain unconvinced about Christ and Christianity. They look at Christians and they wonder about the claim of whether or not Christ really changes people. Because if they see you in a constant state of depression, if they see you in a constant state of hatred, if they see you in constant animosity, if all of our friendships and relationships are adversarial, how can we convince a watching world that Jesus is really at the heart of who we are and what we are? The Bible translates a Greek word for bless It's the word eulogeo. You is a word that meant well. Logeo was speech. We have adopted a word from this word in our own language. Sometimes we use the term eulogy. If a loved one in your family dies, there is usually someone who's assigned the task of speaking well about that person. This is the same word. Think of your unsaved family member. Think of your unsaved friends as dead in trespasses and sins. They're dead to God. They're dead to the grace of God. They're dead to the forgiveness of God. They're dead to the gospel of God. And so you have to find something good to say about them. So what do you do when your employer, or your neighbor, or your family member, or your classmate, or your fellow worker, they begin to rain down abuse? What do you do? Some people say, I get therapy. Other people say, I enroll in an outpatient program. Other people say, I get mad. Italian people say, I get even. But these aren't the options that are outlined by the Bible. Jesus says, I'm going to introduce you to something radical and different. Paul says, I'm going to introduce something radical and different. Praise your persecutor. Find something good to commend them. Pray for your persecutor. Paul in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 31 writes, let all bitterness and wrath and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another tender hearted forgiving one another even as God in Christ has forgiven you and you might be thinking i i can't i can't do it and the bible says you must jesus said in matthew 5:44 But I say to you, love your enemies. And remember what love means in the New Testament. That doesn't mean you have a warm, fuzzy feeling that wells up in the pit of your stomach. It's a willingness to do what's right towards them. Bless them who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. Pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Wow. Think of the impact on your persecutor when you adopt an attitude of love and blessing. Think about what happens to them. I know what some of you are thinking. You're wrong, Gino. You're wrong. The person will think I'm a patsy. They'll think I'm a doormat. They'll think I'm a fool. They'll think I'm a a coward. Not every persecutor will be convinced. Or one to Christ. But each must be given a strong witness That can be used by the Holy Spirit. In the persecutor's quiet and reflective moments. When he or she begin to think about what they have done to you. And why they have done it to you. And perhaps there's no better example given in all of the New Testament. When Saul of Tarsus is there at the the stoning of Stephen. They've laid their coats by his feet. They're holding on to his stuff. And Stephen is watching or, or Paul is or Saul is watching Stephen as he is being put to death. People are picking up rocks, they're throwing them at him. You can see the blow as, it, as, the, as the stone strikes his body as another one hits his head as the skin cracks open and he begins to bleed and he prays and he goes, Jesus, remember me when I come into your kingdom' and Saul never forgets the image he it never goes away arab people have a custom that we would do to emulate we would do well to emulate You know, in the Arab cultures, when someone meets someone or someone departs from someone, they touch their head, they touch their lips, they touch their heart. And when they touch their head, they are in effect saying, I think so highly of you, I am going to speak well of you, my heart beats for you. It's a beautiful expression. I'm thinking about you. I want my lips to say good things about you. I want my heart to be fond of you. And someone might say, they don't really mean it. They're secretly planning to kill you. Well, should another person's hypocrisy be the grounds for your hypocrisy? And disobedience to Christ? You might be thinking, they don't really mean it. But in a moment of honesty and complete transparency, neither do we. It takes divine love. It takes Jesus' love to respond in the face of insult and injury, not just with fear or difficulty, but with love and kindness. And so, look what he says when love is sympathetic. Look at verse 15. He says, Rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. We match their mood. The idea being, if they're in trouble, we get concerned. If there is sorrow, we express comfort and consolation. If they're filled with joy, we reflect that joy. And there are those people who say, I'm not interested in other people. Well, guess what? If you're not interested in other people, then you aren't interested in love. Because love is interested in others. Love is interested in what they think and how they feel. They're interested in success as well as sorrow. And many of us have gained great victory in embracing and sharing in the sorrows of other people. When other people are hurt, when they're in difficulty, when they experience tragedy, there is sympathy and compassion towards others. But some of us are less likely to be supportive when it comes to the issue of success. We may find it difficult to generate the same kinds of feelings, both of consolation and congratulation, but Paul says remember, let love be without hypocrisy. We rejoice in the successes of others, we divide the sorrow, we share the joy. When the Broncos win, we cheer. When the Broncos lose, we allow a little bit of moisture to cloud our vision. You don't have to break down and cry, but you should at least mist up a little bit. You know what the natural disposition of the people in the world is? They gloat when they win. They exercise what referees in football call excessive celebration. They yell, they scream, they celebrate, and we're sometimes jealous of other people's good fortunes. And we may be tempted to pass by their misfortune, but love is God's way, and that's the point that Paul is making. We're to enter into hardship and joy... With equal enthusiasm. That's what he's saying. D.L. Moody in one of his great sermons. He pictures the Lord Jesus after his resurrection. He has his disciples together. He's giving instructions to Peter. D.L. Moody says. Go find the man who thrust the spear into my side. And tell him that there's a much quicker way to my heart. Find the man who crowned me with thorns. And tell him I'm willing to give him a crown of life. That captures the meaning. It captures the meaning. Jesus isn't mad at the person who killed him. Jesus is looking for ways to save people and forgive people and reconcile people. Remember the first miracle Jesus ever performed. He turns water into, a, into wine. He rejoices with those who rejoice. And of course, the last miracle. <laughs> it's at a funeral, really, most scholars believe. Technically, the last miracle is sticking that ear back on Malchus's head. But the last recorded miracle is in John 11, where Jesus brings Lazarus back to life. Can you imagine? First miracle wedding. Last miracle funeral. And look at verse 16, when love unites... Paul writes, be of the same mind toward one another. Do not set your mind on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. The idea that Paul gives to us is that love unites Love isn't in the business of dividing and separating. We mind our manners. The New Living Translation translates this. Live in harmony with each other. Don't act so important. Enjoy the company of ordinary people. Don't think like a know-it-all. I like that. So what does this kind of unity do? Paul says, do not think more highly of yourself. We're to have the right estimation. Ways translation goes like this. Do not be exclusive, but walk hand in hand with the lowly. If verse 14 and 15 speaks of love's empathy, here we're looking at love's safeguard. This is what will guard love. Don't be partial, verse 16 at the beginning. Don't be proud at the end of verse 16. Don't be partial. Don't be proud. Don't divide. Christians often will divide each other by rank, by economic circumstance, by socio-economic circumstances. We do not separate ourselves by anything other than character. That's what we divide. We unite over the issue of character. We participate with one another in love. So, how do we avoid being partial? How do we avoid being proud? Have a right estimation of yourself. And then look what Paul says not only have a right way of thinking about yourself, but then associate with the humble. He doesn't mean those who self identify as humble, he means those who are in the lowest walks of life, men of low estate. People that you wouldn't normally have contact with. Most of you stay in hotels. You don't work in hotels. But when the maid walks in and you say, Hey, how are you doing? And the maid looks at you surprised because people in the room never talk to them. They usually say, Lo siento, no hablo inglés." And you go, no problemo. Yo hablo espanol. <laughs> ¿Cómo está tu familia? ¿Tienes hijos? Do you have family? Tell me a little bit about yourself. Where are you from? And immediately you're going to see a smile. Paul knew that people place too much emphasis on classifications and social strata and the like. And that's... Typically, what we do if we're in law enforcement, we, we tend to think of people as sworn or not sworn. If we are athletes, we think of people who play and those who don't play. We tend to think in terms of people who come into contact with us and our circumstances. So what does Paul mean when he writes, do not be wise in your own opinion? It's his way of saying, avoid thinking that makes you seem better than anyone or everyone else. The real force of the passage means, instead of separating, love unites Love produces harmony in relationship. Humility doesn't allow for snobbery. Do we treat people the same? And some people might say, yes, I treat people equally bad. I hate all of them the same. (laughs) But this is actually not what the passage has in mind. So again, how do we avoid being proud? Don't be wise in your own opinion. Don't be a know-it-all. Be careful, Bible answer man. The Bible does have answers, but beware when you have all the answers. The Apostle's warning about inflated egos. And so the answer to the person who has developed an overly developed sense of self-importance, the Bible gives warnings, warnings about pride. God knows that pride always overreaches its claims. Pride always demands. Pride has selfish requests. Pride has cruel commands. In Second Chronicles 26 verses 16 through 23, there's this amazing story about King Uzziah. And King Uzziah was a king who did, for the most part, things that were right. But he became exaggerated in his own sensibilities. He decided he was going to oppose the will of God by offering incense. In other words, he wasn't content to be a king. He also wanted to be a priest. And the Bible says that his heart was lifted up in verse 16. He transgressed. He was overcome with pride. He went in. That's the presumption of pride. He was wroth or angry. And the Bible says that God cut him off and then turned him into a leper. That was the isolation of pride. And that's what pride does. It invites judgment and eventually brings about isolation. And so we're to avoid it. This is why I've changed my, my ringtone and phone number from who knows, Gino's. It just seemed a little too presumptuous. So, what do we do? This is what love refuses. Look at verse 17. Repay no one for evil. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things. In the sight of all men. Paul is speaking about the kind of love. That refuses. To retaliate. In one sense Paul invites us to take an inventory. Things that we can do. And things that we don't do. And because we live in a world of get even. These are the ordinary tactics. Of the unregenerate. The unregenerate will look at you. Or look at what you've done. And they'll say. Payback. Payback is coming. But Paul says. No. Repay no one evil for evil. And note what it says, no one. Not just the people you love... So what does it mean to have regard for good things in the sight of all men? The sense seems to be careful to conform to the proprieties, the decencies of human society. When it says have regard for good things in the sight of all men, the, the, the expression seems to mean when you are out in public, act in such a way that is socially acceptable, that this is what normal people do to normal people in a civilized society. We are ethical as well as spiritual. And so spiritual conduct is ethical conduct. And ethical conduct is spiritual conduct. The New Living Translation translates this, Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men in the sense of that which is appropriate. So there's several principles that he gives. Quickly, I'm going to give them to you. Live passively. Live peerlessly. Live peaceably. There's going to be one more. When he says live passively, not passionless, not cold, not unemotional, not irritable, cross, unresponsive, unloving, untouchable. Here passive means quiet, confident, unmoved, un shaken. Paul assumes that people will do what is evil. Reread the verse. Repay no one evil for evil. Does that imply that something bad's going to happen to you? That's the right answer. Is it hard to live in this world and never have one single bad thing happen to you? Hey, i got to tell you something. It's almost impossible. At some point in your life, someone's going to say something or do something that was uncalled for and that was unwelcome. And so Paul invites us to a different treatment. By the way, was Paul familiar with evil treatment? I think the answer is yes. Was Jesus familiar with evil treatment? I think that that's the right answer. And so both Jesus and Paul invites us to a different kind of relationship with our enemy, a love relationship. The believer who has no enemies isn't doing Christianity right. A few days ago, I got a call from... James Hesterly, he said somebody's tagged the back of our building with some things that I can't repeat from the pulpit. And so what do we do? We find paint, and we paint over the graffiti, and then we pray. Heavenly Father, reveal to us these people who have tagged our building so that we can give them a gift card to Chili's. See, you're laughing because you're going, who does that? (laughs) Who gives the tagger a gift card to Chili's? Yes, tagger, if you're listening right now. I said it in front of all of these people. Wow, you mean if I just come forward and claim that I'm the guilty culprit, I can get a gift card to Chili's? We live peerlessly, that is... We provide things honest in the sight of men. We do things in such a way that everyone will see, wow, what you did was honorable. We live peaceably in verse 18. When love seeks peace, look what it says in verse 18. If it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all people or with all men. Love isn't needlessly provocative. Sometimes people respond to my radio program by writing me emails. They're not looking for answers. They're looking for arguments. Not all, but some. Some are looking for validation. Some are looking for acceptance. Some are making an honest inquiry. But some people really want to fight. But we should love peace. And we should make peace. And we should be at peace whenever it's possible. This last week I had Jack Graham. He is the the pastor of Prestonwood Baptist Church. Which has 30,000 plus people. And I was reading his book about the unseen. And we were talking about uh, what prompted the writing of his book. And Jack Graham told the story of his father. His father worked at a hardware store in the Dallas-Fort Worth area. He was a big man and a strong man. And a man who knew how to take care of himself. And someone... A shoplifter had come into the store and had stolen some things. And the shoplifter was running away and he was speeding down the alley. And, and Jack's father was on a ladder and he had his toolkit with him. And he took out a hammer and he threw it at the culprit who was fleeing the scene. And the, the hammer missed and the person stopped and in a rage he picked up the hammer and he walked back to Jack Graham's dad and he pushed him down and he b- began to bludgeon him with the hammer over and over and over again and people gathered around and they and then the guy took off and they caught him just very very quickly but his father was in a coma and his father didn't survive the nature of peace is love but love has boundaries when it says in verse when it says in verse 18 if it is possible as much as depends on you live peaceably what he is saying is that love has boundaries love has principles And places where love cannot go. Paul isn't inviting us to love with no principle. He is not inviting us to love apart from truth or apart from the gospel. He's not talking about a peace at any price. We do not embrace a peace. That asks us to do that which is evil or immoral or illegal. We believe in a peace that's informed by principle and truth and virtue. And we exercise and exert and make every effort to make peace. And peace requires compliance usually from two or more parties. And you see you can make a conscientious effort to bring unity and harmony. There's a book by Ken Sandee entitled Peace Fakers, Peace Breakers, and Peacemakers. He has an interesting graph in his book which describes escape responses. These are peace fakers. And peacemaking responses, that's peacemaking. And attack responses, that's peace breaking. And some of the escape responses include suicide and flight and denial. But for the peacemaker, there's a willingness to overlook faults, indiscretions, to make efforts to reconcile, to negotiate, to mediate, to arbitrate. It's a kind of a peace that includes accountability. And then there's the attack responses, peace-breaking, including assault and litigation and murder. So we approach each one. But again, in our heart of hearts, in our soul of souls, we want unity and harmony. And this is why we avoid people who manipulate through circumstances in order to try and get their way. And so Paul talks about a love that forsakes vengeance. Look what it says in verse 19. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. The passage distinguishes between vengeance and wrath. And so he's talked about some principles Live passively at the beginning of verse 17. Live peerlessly at the end of verse 17. Live peaceably, verse 18. Live positively in verses 19 through 20. In what way? When Paul writes, but rather give place to wrath, it means believe in wrath. Give place means Allow for the biblical doctrine of God's wrath and God's judgment to find a place in your heart, in your thinking and in your living. Begin to understand and accept the reality (laughs) that there is a God and he will judge and he will judge fairly. Right after Columbine, there was a tragic murder that took place at the corner of Coal Mine and Pierce where two people were savagely, brutally executed. I was one of the first people on the scene with the Jefferson County Sheriff's Department. And in the, the subway sandwich shot, these two children had been literally executed. This is 2004. That was February 2000. This is May 2014. It's a cold case. It's never been solved. Their murderer has never been caught. He's never been prosecuted. But I have to believe that there was a God who was there. And there was a God who was watching. And there is a God who judges righteously. And that there is no wrong that will be left unresolved. Few things are more hollow Or more empty than revenge. Vengeance is the right and the prerogative of God. But Paul invites the reader to do more. Paul doesn't simply say step aside and wait for the white throne judgment. But rather step inside. Into the person's life and into the person's circumstance. And into the person's heart who is hurting you. Serve your enemies who are hungry. Satisfy your enemies' thirst. By the way, during the Civil War, Jefferson Davis, president of the Confederate States of America, asked General Robert E. Lee to give his opinion about another military officer. And General Lee praised the man, outlined his military credentials, pointed to his clear successes. And a man who was present overheard him and said, General, don't you know that this is the man of whom you speak so highly, is one of your bitterest enemies, and misses no opportunity to criticize you and slander you? And Lee said, yes, the president asked my opinion of him. He didn't ask his opinion of me. We laugh, but again, Lee was a man of integrity and Christian sensibility. Most people are tempted to avenge wrong when it's done to them. We say, don't get mad, get even, but what do you do? There are people even now listening to this message, they're, they're asking the question, where do you draw the line? And the correct answer? Where did Jesus draw the line? I have another question for you. Did Jesus let people take advantage of him? I think that the answer is no. But I think that the answer is also yes. Does Jesus allow people to arrest him unjustly? To torture him unjustly, to speak to him maliciously, and then to wickedly execute him. The Bible says, like a lamb to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. Paul writes, Give place to wrath. Again, remember what it means? Believe in God's wrath, believe in judgment. In what sense? Believe, believe with all of your heart that there is a time when God will right every wrong. And this includes everything that I've done wrong to you and everything that you've done wrong to me. And so the issue seems to be far greater and far deeper. That we keep a short list of offense. Paul quotes Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 35. He's quoting, vengeance is mine, Deuteronomy 32, 35. Vengeance is mine and recompense. And then this very famous passage, maybe not famous to you. Their foot shall slip in due time. For the day of their calamity is at hand. And the things to come will hasten upon them. You may not be familiar with that passage. But this is the passage that Jonathan Edwards made famous in his his sermon entitled. Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. He chose as his text. Their foot shall slip. In due time, if you were ever a kid and if you've ever walked over a creek bed or a river and you're trying to keep from slipping on the slippery stones, you're trying to keep your balance, the rock is wet, you're trying to go forward, your foot hits the rock and all of a sudden it comes out from under you and you find yourself in the water. The wicked will have their recompense. Their foot shall slip in due time. Vengeance is God's prerogative. And so the real question that you need to ask is, do you really want to interfere with what's God's exclusive right? Now again, does this mean that you can't have police officers? Of course this isn't what it means. There needs to be social, civil there, There needs to be order in a civilized society. Does this mean that you don't have a military? No. Governments, if they have any purpose whatsoever, it's to protect their citizens. But don't imagine for even a second... That God will not repay at exactly the right moment in exactly the right way. Linsky writes, God has long ago settled the whole matter about exacting justice from wrongdoers. Not one of them will escape. Perfect justice will be done in every case and will be done perfectly. If any of us interfered, it would be the height of presumption. And that becomes the real question. Are you willing to interfere in what is God's exclusive domain? And this is why Paul writes, therefore, in light of that, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Paul is quoting literally from Proverbs 25, verses 21 and 22. So what in the world does this mean? We do good. Not to see our enemy squirm under the blessings and grace of generosity and love. We do good. How are we to deal with opposition, hatred, persecution? We do good. We don't seek revenge for injuries. John Phillips writes, quote, it was in this way that God reacted to Calvary. The cross represents the very highest manifestation of hatred in the heart of human beings towards God. At the same time, it represents the very highest manifestation of the love in the heart of God toward man. That very spear which pierced the Savior's side drew forth the very blood that saves, unquote. Heaping coals may mean different things to different people at different times. But the simplest explanation is probably the correct one. When you do good to your enemies. You will heap burning pangs of shame and contrition on their heads. Which hopefully, maybe not surely, will lead them to God's grace. But you would hope that it would. A good example is David and Saul in the cave and in Getty. David is being pursued by Saul. Saul is convinced that he's going to kill David. And David finds him in a cave in a dark place. And David sneaks up on him. And has the opportunity to kill him but doesn't. But rather he cuts the robe of his garment and Saul goes his merry way. And then David brings it to Saul's attention. That I could have killed you. And I didn't. The coals could have been a prelude to peace and blessing. Even Saul at that point claims that he's done wrong and he's done David wrong. It marks a confession but not repentance. Surprised people are sometimes overcome by kindness. There was a Hindu manufacturer who told Stanley E. Stanley Jones, why he had come to one of his his meetings in India, he said, years ago when I was a boy, we heckled a missionary who was preaching in the bazaar and we threw tomatoes at him and he wiped off the tomato juice from his face and then after the meeting he took us all to a sweet shop and bought us sweets. He says, I saw the love of Christ that day and that's why I'm here. What kind of a man? Gets hit in the face with a tomato. Wipes the juice off and then takes the kid who hit him in the face with a tomato to a candy store. When I was in India, <laughs> one of the pastors was talking about persecution and an issue that he was dealing with. And I couldn't believe how with such grace and mercy and long-suffering he put up with the persecution. And I said to him, Why, how could you possibly put up with that? And he goes... I love to see smoke come from the top of his head. (laughs) This is exactly what he has in mind. Paul writes, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul's definition of victory doesn't meet the world's definition. We usually give as good as we get. Darby explains the first part of this verse this way. He says, if my bad temper puts you in a bad temper, then that means you've been overcome by evil, unquote. The great black scientist George Washington Carver said, quote, I will never allow another man to ruin my life by making me hate him, unquote. He wouldn't allow evil to take over. The negative don't is followed by a positive do. Evil faces its toughest challenge when good people do good things. During the Civil War, Edwin McMaster Stanton used to say, hey, you don't have to go to Africa to find a gorilla. You can find one in Springfield, Illinois. He was talking about Abraham Lincoln. Lincoln was the constant Butt of his jokes and criticism, and his constant criticism and jabs went with, by without response. And when the war broke out, Lincoln appointed Stanton to be the Secretary of War because he was the most qualified man for the job. And after Lincoln was shot in the head in office, Stanton wept. And called him the greatest leader of men. Because he had been conquered by love. This is Paul's advice. On how to love when you've been wronged. And clearly this is exactly what Jesus has done for us. It's easy to read these words and it's really, really difficult to follow them. You know, towards the end of his life, W.C. Fields was seen reading the Bible. And he was a, a hopeless, incorrigible, reprobate sinner. And a surprised friend asked him why he would do such a thing. And he was going through the Bible and he says, Looking for loopholes. Looking for loopholes. He's wondering if there was a way out. A way out of the life that he had led. And there is a loophole. If you've lived a life of sin and rebellion. Jesus' death and resurrection can cleanse you. And forgive you. And reconcile you. But there is no loophole for the Christian to love. There is no convenient way out from the command. Any plans to avenge ourselves, any plan to continue to live in sin, any plan to live apart from love, any plan to stew in your juices, any plan that includes an unforgiving spirit that doesn't come from God. Kent Hughes writes Love in the church and love in the world go together. These are the demands of commitment. Our minds have been renewed. Our lives transformed. The Holy Spirit can do this. And now think about chapter 12. It begins with consecration. It continues with evaluation. It it winds up recognizing gifts. And these gifts are informed by love. There was a man who was complaining to a missionary about missions in Africa. He said, I'm going to Africa. And he said, how can you go and preach in Africa to them and preach to them about love when there's so much injustice in our own country? And the mission leader, his answer was classic. He said, we don't go in and preach to them about love. We go in and we love them. How in the world will we do that? Again, personal consecration. Self-examination, using your gift. This is the kind of love that discriminates. It hates evil and loves good in verse 9. This is love that's fraternal. It's brotherly love. It's affectionate love in verse 10. It's humble, preferring one another. It's not lazy in verse 11. It rejoices in hope in verse 12. It's patient In tribulation in verse 12. It's prayerful in verse 12. It's thoughtful in verse 12. It's helpful in verse 13. It's a blessing instead of curse in verse 14. It's sympathetic in verse 15. It's unifying in verse 16. It's ethical and spiritual in verse 17. It's peaceful in verse 18. It's hopeful and helpful in verse 19 and 20. It's victorious in verse 21. Hopeful. Not helpful, or hopeful, not hateful, helpful, not hypocritical. And this is just chapter 12. (laughs) Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, we know that love's demands and love's commands might seem impossible. And Lord, we know that they really are apart from the presence of the Holy Spirit. That personal consecration and self-examination and a willing to come to grips with what it means to be a gifted man or woman requires the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer to live a life of compassion and love. And Lord, again, we confess that we fall short. But we also confess that in moments of clarity and simplicity, we know that if we will allow the love of Jesus to simply be lived out in our lives, we will be fine. And so again, Lord, we pray that we wouldn't just simply preach about love to our family and friends. But we would live lives of love so that the things that we say and the things that we do match. In Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.